Section 1 of The Unknown Life of Jesus Christ. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Unknown Life of Jesus Christ by Nicholas Notovich. Translated by J. H. Connolly and L. Landsberg. Chapter 1 A Journey in Tibet, Part 1. During my sojourn in India, I often had occasion to converse with the Buddhists, and the accounts they gave me of Tibet excited my curiosity to such an extent that I resolved to make a journey into that still almost unknown country. For this purpose, I set out upon a route, crossing Kashmir, which I had long intended to visit. On the 14th of October, 1887, I entered a railway car crowded with soldiers, and went from Lahore to Raval Pinidi, where I arrived the next day near noon. After resting a little and inspecting the city, to which the permanent garrison gives the aspect of a military camp, I provided myself with the necessities for a journey where horses take the place of the railway cars. Assisted by my servant, a coloured man of Pondicherry, I packed all my baggage, hired a tonga, a two-wheeled vehicle which is drawn by two horses, stowed myself upon its back seat, and set out upon the picturesque road leading to Kashmir, an excellent highway, upon which we travelled rapidly. We had to use no little skill in making our way through the ranks of a military caravan, its baggage carried upon camels, which was part of a detachment returning from a country camp to the city. Soon we arrived at the end of the valley of Penjab, and climbing up a way with infinite windings, entered the passes of the Himalayas. The ascent became more and more steep. Behind us spread, like a beautiful panorama, the region we had just traversed, which seemed to sink farther and farther away from us. As the sun's last glances rested upon the tops of the mountains, our Tonga came gaily out from the zigzags which the eye could still trace far down the forest-clad slope, and halted at the little city of Murray, where the families of the English functionaries came to seek shade and refreshment. Ordinarily one can go in a Tonga from Murray to Srinagar, but at the approach of the winter season, when all Europeans desert Kashmir, the Tonga service is suspended. I undertook my journey precisely at the time when the summer life begins to wane, and the Englishmen whom I met upon the road, returning to India, were much astonished to see me, and made vain efforts to divine the purpose of my travel to Kashmir. Abandoning the Tonga, I hired saddle-horses, not without considerable difficulty, and evening had arrived when we started to descend from Uray, which is at an altitude of five thousand feet. This stage of our journey had nothing playful in it. The road was torn in deep ruts by the late rains. Darkness came upon us, and our horses rather guessed than saw their way. When night had completely set in, a tempestuous rain surprised us in the open country, and, owing to the thick foliage of the centenarian oaks which stood on the sides of our road, we were plunged in profound darkness. That we might not lose each other, we had to continue exchanging calls from time to time. 
In this impenetrable obscurity we divined huge masses of rock almost above our heads, and were conscious of, on our left, a roaring torrent, the water of which formed a cascade we could not see. During two hours we waded in the mud, and the icy rain had chilled my very marrow, when we perceived in the distance a little fire, the sight of which revived our energies. But how deceitful are lights in the mountains! You believe you see the fire burning quite near to you, and at once it disappears, to reappear again to the right, to the left, above, below you, as if it took pleasure in playing tricks upon the harassed traveller. All the time the road makes a thousand turns, and winds here and there, and the fire, which is immovable, seems to be in continual motion, the obscurity preventing you realising that you yourself modify your direction every instant. I had quite given up all hope of approaching this much-wished-for fire when it appeared again, and this time so near that our horses stopped before it. I have here to express my sincere thanks to the Englishmen for the foresight of which they gave proof in building by the roadsides the little bungalows, one-story houses for the shelter of travellers. It is true one must not demand comfort in this kind of hotel, but this is a matter in which the traveller, broken down by fatigue, is not exacting, and he is at the summit of happiness when he finds at his disposal a clean and a dry room. The Hindus, no doubt, did not expect to see a traveller arrive at so late an hour of the night and in this season, for they had taken away the keys of the bungalow, so we had to force an entrance. I threw myself upon a bed prepared for me, composed of a pillow and blanket saturated with water, and almost at once fell asleep. At daybreak, after taking tea and some conserves, we took up our march again, now bathed in the burning rays of the sun. From time to time we passed villages, the first in a superb narrow pass, then along the road meandering in the bosom of the mountain. We descended eventually to the river Jilam, the waters of which flow gracefully amid the rocks by which its course is obstructed between rocky walls whose tops, in many places, seem almost to reach the azure skies of the Himalayas, a heaven which here shows itself remarkably pure and serene. Toward noon we arrived at the hamlet called Tung, situated on the bank of the river, which presents an unique array of huts that give the effect of boxes, the openings of which form a façade. Here are sold comestibles and all kinds of merchandise. The place swarms with Hindus, who bear on their foreheads the variously coloured marks of their respective castes. Here, too, you see the beautiful people of Kashmir, dressed in their long white shirts and snowy turbans. I hired here, at a good price, a Hindu cabriolet from a Kashmirian, this vehicle is so constructed that in order to keep one's seat in it one must cross his legs in the Turkish fashion. The seat is so small that it will hold at most only two persons. The absence of any support for the back makes this mode of transportation very dangerous. Nevertheless, I accepted this kind of circular table mounted on two wheels and drawn by a horse, as I was anxious to reach as soon as possible the end of my journey. Hardly, however, had I gone five hundred yards on it, when I seriously regretted the horse I had forsaken. So much fatigue had I to endure keeping my legs crossed, 
and maintaining my equilibrium. Unfortunately, it was already too late. Evening was falling when I approached the village of Hori. Exhausted by fatigue, racked by the incessant jolting, my legs feeling as if invaded by millions of ants, I had been completely incapable of enjoying the picturesque landscape spread before us as we journeyed along the Jalam, the banks of which are bordered on one side by steep rocks, and on the other by the heavily wooded slopes of the mountains. In Hori I encountered a caravan of pilgrims returning from Mecca. Thinking I was a physician, and learning my haste to reach Ladakh, they invited me to join them, which I promised I would, at Srinagar. I spent an ill night sitting up in my bed with a lighted torch in my hand, without closing my eyes, in constant fear of the stings and bites of the scorpions and centipedes which swarm in the bungalows. I was sometimes ashamed of the fear with which those vermin inspired me. Nevertheless, I could not fall asleep among them. Where, truly, in man, is the line that separates courage from cowardice? I will not boast of my bravery, but I am not a coward. Yet the insurmountable fear with which these malevolent little creatures thrilled me drove sleep from my eyelids, in spite of my extreme fatigue. Our horses carried us into a flat valley, encircled by high mountains. Bathed as I was in the rays of the sun, it did not take me long to fall asleep in the saddle. A sudden sense of freshness penetrated and awoke me. I saw that we had already begun climbing a mountain path in the midst of a dense forest, rifts in which occasionally opened to our admiring gaze ravishing vistas, impetuous torrents, distant mountains, cloudless heavens, a landscape far below of wondrous beauty. All about us were the songs of numberless brilliantly plumaged birds. We came out of the forest toward noon descended to a little hamlet on the bank of the river, and, after refreshing ourselves with a light, cold collation, continued our journey. Before starting I went to a bazaar and tried to buy there a glass of warm milk from a Hindu who was sitting crouched before a large cauldron full of boiling milk. How great was my surprise when he proposed to me that I should take away the whole cauldron with its contents, assuring me that I had polluted the milk it contained. I only want a glass of milk and not a kettle of it, I said to him. According to our laws, the merchant answered me, if any one not belonging to our caste has fixed his eyes for a long time upon one of our cooking utensils, we have to wash that article thoroughly and throw away the food it contains. You have polluted my milk, and no one will drink any more of it, for not only were you not contented with fixing your eyes upon it, but you have even pointed to it with your finger. I had indeed a long time examined his merchandise to make sure that it was really milk, and had pointed with my finger to the merchant from which side I wished the milk poured out. Full of respect for the laws and customs of foreign people, I paid without dispute a rupee, the price of all the milk which was poured in the street, though I had taken only one glass of it. This was a lesson which taught me from now on not to fix my eyes upon the food of the Hindus. There is no religious belief more muddled by the numbers of ceremonious laws and commentaries prescribing its observances than the Brahminic. While each of the other principal religions has but one inspired book, one Bible, one Gospel, or one Koran, 
books from which the Hebrew, the Christian, and the Muslim draw their creeds, the Brahminical Hindus possess such a great number of tomes and commentaries in folio that the wisest Brahmin has hardly had the time to peruse one-tenth of them. Leaving aside the four books of the Vedas, the Puranas, which are written in Sanskrit and composed of eighteen volumes, containing four hundred thousand strophes treating of law, rites, theogony, medicine, the creation and destruction of the world, etc., the vast Shastras, which deal with mathematics, grammar, etc., the Upavitas, Upanishads, Upopuranas, which are explanatory of the Puranas, and a number of other commentaries in several volumes. There still remain twelve vast books containing the laws of Manu, the grandchild of Brahma, books dealing not only with civil and criminal law, but also the canonical rules, rules which impose upon the faithful such a considerable number of ceremonies that one is surprised into admiration of the illimitable patience the Hindus show in observance of the precepts inculcated by Saint Manu. Manu was incontestably a great legislator and a great thinker, but he has written so much that it has happened to him frequently to contradict himself in the course of a single page. The Brahmins do not take the trouble to notice that, and the poor Hindus, whose labor supports the Brahminic caste, obey servilely their clergy, whose prescriptions enjoin upon them never to touch a man who does not belong to their caste, and also absolutely prohibit a stranger from fixing his attention upon anything belonging to a Hindu. Keeping himself to the strict letter of this law, the Hindu imagines that his food is polluted when it receives a little protracted notice from the stranger. And yet Brahmanism has been, even at the beginning of its second birth, a purely monotheistic religion, recognizing only one infinite and indivisible God. As it came to pass in all times and in religions, the clergy took advantage of the privileged situation which places them above the ignorant multitude, and early manufactured various exterior forms of cult and certain laws, thinking they could better in this way influence and control the masses. Things changed soon, so far that the principle of monotheism of which the Vedas have given such a clear conception became confounded with, or, as it were, supplanted by an absurd and limitless series of gods and goddesses, half-gods, genii, and devils, which were represented by idols of infinite variety, but all equally horrible-looking. The people, once glorious as their religion was once great and pure, now slip by degrees into complete idiocy. Hardly does their day suffice for the accomplishment of all the prescriptions of their canons. It must be said positively that the Hindus only exist to support their principal caste, the Brahmins, who have taken into their hands the temporal power which once was possessed by independent sovereigns of the people. While governing India, the Englishman does not interfere with this phase of the public life, and so the Brahmins profit by maintaining the people's hope of a better future. The sun passed behind the summit of a mountain, and the darkness of night in one moment overspread the magnificent landscape we were traversing. Soon the narrow valley of the Jhelum fell asleep. Our road winding among ledges of steep rocks was instantly hidden from our sight, Mountains and trees were confounded together in one dark mass, 
and the stars glittered in the celestial vault. We had to dismount and feel our way along the mountainside for fear of becoming the prey of the abyss which yawned at our feet. At a late hour of the night we traversed a bridge and ascended a steep elevation leading to the bungalow Uri, which at this height seems to enjoy complete isolation. The next day we traversed a charming region, always going along the river, at a turn of which we saw the ruins of a Sikh fortress that seemed to remember sadly its glorious past. In a little valley, nestled amid the mountains, we found a bungalow which seemed to welcome us. In its proximity were encamped a cavalry regiment of the Maharaja of Kashmir. When the officers learned that I was a Russian, they invited me to share their repast. There I had the pleasure of making the acquaintance of Colonel Brown, who was the first to compile a dictionary of the Afghan Pushton language. As I was anxious to reach as soon as possible the city of Srinagar, I, with little delay, continued my journey through the picturesque region lying at the foot of the mountains, after having for a long time followed the course of the river. Here, before our eyes, weary of the monotonous desolation of the preceding landscapes, was unfolded a charming view of a well-peopled valley, with many two-story houses surrounded by gardens and cultivated fields. A little farther on begins the celebrated valley of Kashmir, situated behind a range of high rocks which I crossed towards evening. What a superb panorama revealed itself before my eyes when I found myself at the last rock which separates the valley of Kashmir from the mountainous country I had traversed. A ravishing tableau truly enchanted my sight. This valley, the limits of which are lost in the horizon, and is throughout well populated, is enshrined amid the high Himalayan mountains. At the rising and the setting of the sun, the zone of eternal snows seems a silver ring, which like a girdle surrounds this rich and delightful plateau, furrowed by numerous rivers, and traversed by excellent roads, gardens, hills, a lake, the islands in which are occupied by constructions of pretentious style. All these cause the traveller to feel as if he had entered another world. It seems to him as though he had to go but a little farther on, and there must find the paradise of which his governess had told him so often in his childhood. The veil of night slowly covered the valley, merging mountains, gardens, and lake in one dark amplitude, pierced here and there by distant fires resembling stars. I descended into the valley, directing myself towards the jellum, which has broken its way through a narrow gorge in the mountains to unite itself with the waters of the river Ind. According to the legend, the valley was once an inland sea. A passage opened through the rocks environing it, and drained the waters away, leaving nothing more of its former character than the lake, the jellum, and minor watercourses. The banks of the river are now lined with boathouses, long and narrow, which the proprietors, with their families, inhabit the whole year. From here, Srinagar can be reached in one day's travel on horseback, but with a boat the journey requires a day and a half. I chose the latter mode of conveyance, and having selected a boat and bargained with its proprietor for its hire, took my seat in the bow upon a carpet, sheltered by a sort of penthouse roof. The boat left the shore at midnight, bearing us rapidly towards Srinagar. At the stern of the park, a Hindu prepared my tea. I went to sleep, 
happy in knowing my voyage was to be accomplished. The hot caress of the sun's rays penetrating my little roof awakened me, and what I experienced delighted me beyond all expression. Entirely green banks, the distant outlines of mountain tops covered with snow, pretty villages which from time to time showed themselves at the mountain's foot, the crystalline sheet of water, pure and peculiarly agreeable air which I breathed with exhilaration, the musical carols of an infinity of birds, a sky of extraordinary purity. Behind me the plash of water stirred by the round-ended paddle, which was wielded with ease by a superb woman, with marvellous eyes and a complexion browned by the sun, who wore an air of stately indifference. All these things together seemed to plunge me into an ecstasy, and I forgot entirely the reason for my presence on the river. In that moment I had not even a desire to reach the end of my voyage, and yet how many privations remained for me to undergo and dangers to encounter. I felt myself here so well content. The boat glided rapidly, and the landscape continued to unfold new beauties before my eyes, losing itself in ever-new combinations with the horizon, which merged into the mountains we were passing to become one with them. Then a new panorama would display itself, seeming to expand and flow out from the sides of the mountains, becoming more and more grand. The day was almost spent, and I was not yet weary of contemplating this magnificent nature, the view of which reawakened the souvenirs of childhood and youth. How beautiful were those days forever gone! The more nearly one approaches Srinagar, the more numerous become the villages embowered in the verdure. At the approach of our boat some of their inhabitants came running to see us, the men in their turbans, the women in their small bonnets, both alike dressed in white gowns reaching to the ground, the children in a state of nudity which reminded one of the costumes of our first parents. When entering the city one sees a range of barks and floating houses in which entire families reside. The tops of the far-off snow-covered mountains were caressed by the last rays of the setting sun when we glided between the wooden houses of Srinagar, which closely line both banks of the river. Life seems to cease here at sunset. The thousands of many-coloured open boats, dunga, and palaquin-covered barks, bangla, were fastened along the beach. Men and women gathered near the river in the primitive costumes of Adam and Eve, going through their evening ablutions without feeling any embarrassment or prudery before each other, since they performed a religious rite, the importance of which is greater for them than all human prejudices. On the 20th of October I awoke in a neat room from which I had a gay view upon the river that was now inundated with the rays of the sun of Kashmir. As it is not my purpose to describe here my experiences in detail, I refrain from enumerating the lovely valleys, the paradise of lakes, the enchanting islands, those historic places, mysterious pagodas and coquettish villages, which seem lost in vast gardens, on all sides of which rise the majestic tops of the giants of the Himalaya, shrouded as far as the eye can see in eternal snow. I shall only note the preparations I made in view of my journey towards Tibet. I spent six days at Srinagar, making long excursions into the enchanting surroundings of the city, examining the numerous ruins which testify to the ancient prosperity of this region, 
and studying the strange customs of the country. Kashmir, as well as the other provinces attached to it, Baltistan, Ladakh, etc., are vassals of England. They formerly formed part of the possessions of Ranjit Singh, the lion of the Punjab. At his death, the English troops occupied Lahore, the capital of the Punjab, separated Kashmir from the rest of the empire, and ceded it under color of hereditary right and for the sum of 160 million francs to Gulab Singh, one of the familiars of the late sovereign, conferring on him besides the title of Maharaja. At the epoch of my journey, the actual Maharaja was Pertab Singh, the grandchild of Gulab, whose residence is Jammu on the southern slope of the Himalaya. The celebrated Happy Valley of Kashmir, 85 miles long by 25 miles wide, enjoyed glory and prosperity only under the Grand Mogul, whose court loved to taste here the sweetness of country life in the still-existent pavilions on the little island of the lake. Most of the Maharajas of Hindustan used formerly to spend here the summer months, and to take part in the magnificent festivals given by the Grand Mogul. But times have greatly changed since, and the Happy Valley is today no more than a beggar retreat. Aquatic plants and scum have covered the clear waters of the lake. The wild juniper has smothered all the vegetation of the islands. The palaces and pavilions retain only the souvenir of their past grandeur. Earth and grass cover the buildings which are now falling in ruins. The surrounding mountains and their eternally white tops seem to be absorbed in a sullen sadness, and to nourish the hope of a better time for the disclosure of their immortal beauties. The once spiritual, beautiful, and cleanly inhabitants have grown animalistic and stupid. They have become dirty and lazy, and the whip now governs them instead of the sword. The people of Kashmir have so often been subject to invasions and pillages, and have had so many masters, that they have now become indifferent to everything. They pass their time near the banks of the rivers, gossiping about their neighbors, or are engaged in the painstaking work of making their celebrated shawls, or in the execution of filigree gold or silver work. The Kashmir women are of a melancholy temperament, and an inconceivable sadness is spread upon their features. Everywhere reigns misery and uncleanness. The beautiful men and superb women of Kashmir are dirty and in rags. The costume of the two sexes consists, winter and summer alike, of a long shirt or gown, made of thick material and with puffed sleeves. They wear this shirt until it is completely worn out, and never is it washed, so that the white turban of the men looks like dazzling snow near their dirty shirts, which are covered all over with spittle and grease stains. The traveller feels himself permeated with sadness at seeing the contrast between the rich and opulent nature surrounding them, and this people dressed in rags. The capital of the country, Srinagar, city of the sun, or to call it by the name which is given to it here after the country, Kashmir, is situated on the shore of the Jhelum, along which it stretches out toward the south to a distance of five kilometers, and is not more than two kilometers in breadth. Its two-story houses, inhabited by a population of one hundred thousand inhabitants, are built of wood and border both river banks. Everybody lives on the river, 
the shores of which are united by ten bridges. Terraces lead from the houses to the jellum, where all day long people perform their ceremonial ablutions, bathe and wash their culinary utensils, which consist of a few copper pots. Part of the inhabitants practice the Muslim religion, two-thirds are Brahminic, and there are but few Buddhists to be found among them. It was time to make other preparations for travel before plunging into the unknown. Having purchased different kinds of conserves, wine and other things indispensable on a journey through a country so little peopled as is Tibet, I packed all my baggage in boxes, hired six carriers and an interpreter, bought a horse for my own use, and fixed my departure for the 27th of October. To cheer up my journey, I took from a good Frenchman, Monsieur Pichot, the wine cultivator of the Maharaja, a big dog, Pamir, who had already traversed the road with my friends, Bonvolo, Capus, and Pepin, the well-known explorers. As I wished to shorten my journey by two days, I ordered my carriers to leave at dawn from the other side of the lake, which I crossed in a boat, and joined them and my horse at the foot of the mountain chain which separates the valley of Srinagar from the Sindh Gorge. I shall never forget the tortures which we had to undergo in climbing almost on all fours to a mountain-top three thousand feet high. The carriers were out of breath. Every moment I feared to see one tumble down the declivity with his burden, and I felt pained at seeing my poor dog Pamir panting and with his tongue hanging out, making two or three steps and fall to the ground exhausted. Forgetting my own fatigue, I caressed and encouraged the poor animal, who, as if understanding me, got up to make another two or three steps and fall anew to the ground. The night had come when we reached the crest. We threw ourselves greedily upon the snow to quench our thirst, and after a short rest started to descend through a very thick pine forest, hastening to gain the village of Hyena at the foot of the defile, fearing the attacks of beasts of prey in the darkness. A level and good road leads from Srinagar to Hyena, going straight northward over Gandabal, where I repaired by a more direct route across a pass three thousand feet high, which shortened for me both time and distance. My first step in the unknown was marked by an incident which made all of us pass an ugly quarter of an hour. The defile of the Sindh, sixty miles long, is especially noteworthy for the inhospitable hosts it contains. Among others it abounds in panthers, tigers, leopards, black bears, wolves, and jackals. As though by a special misfortune, the snow had covered with its white carpet the heights of the chain, compelling those formidable carnivorous beasts to descend a little lower for shelter in their dens. We descended in silence, amid the darkness, a narrow path that wound through the centenary firs and birches, and the calm of the night was only broken by the crackling sound of our steps. Suddenly quite near to us, a terrible howling awoke the echoes of the woods. Our small troops stopped. A panther! exclaimed in a low and frightened voice my servant. The small caravan of a dozen men stood motionless, as though riveted to the spot. Then it occurred to me that at the moment of starting on our ascent, when already feeling fatigued, I had trusted my revolver to one of the carriers and my Winchester rifle to another. Now I felt bitter regret for having parted with my arms, 
and asked in a low voice where the man was to whom I had given the rifle. The howls became more and more violent, and filled the echoes of the woods, when suddenly a dull sound was heard like the fall of some body. A minute later we heard the noise of a struggle and a cry of agony which mingled with the fierce roars of the starved animal. Saib, take the gun!' I heard someone nearby. I seized feverishly the rifle, but vain trouble one could not see two steps before oneself. A new cry, followed by a smothered howling, indicated to me vaguely the place of the struggle towards which I crawled, divided between the ardent desire to kill a panther and a horrible fear of being eaten alive. No one dared to move. Only after five minutes it occurred to one of the carriers to light a match. I then remembered the fear which feline animals exhibit at the presence of fire, and ordered my men to gather two or three handfuls of brush, which I set on fire. We then saw, about ten steps from us, one of our carriers stretched out on the ground, with his limbs frightfully lacerated by the claws of a huge panther. The beast still lay upon him defiantly, holding a piece of flesh in its mouth. At its side gaped a box of wine broken open by its fall when the carrier was torn down. Hardly did I make a movement to bring the rifle to my shoulder, when the panther raised itself, and turned towards us while dropping part of its horrible meal. One moment it appeared about to spring upon me, then it suddenly wheeled, and rending the air with a howl enough to freeze one's blood, jumped into the midst of the thicket, and disappeared. My coolies, whom an odious fear had all the time kept prostrated on the ground, recovered little by little from their fright. Keeping in readiness a few packages of dry grass and matches, we hastened to reach the village Hyena, leaving behind the remains of the unfortunate Hindu, whose fate we feared sharing. An hour later we had left the forest and entered the plain. I ordered my tent erected under a very leafy plane tree, and had a great fire made before it with a pile of wood which was the only protection we could employ against the ferocious beasts whose howls continued to reach us from all directions. In the forest my dog had pressed himself against me with his tail between his legs, but once under the tent he suddenly recovered his watchfulness, and barked incessantly the whole night, being very careful, however, not to step outside. I spent a terrible night, rifle in hand, listening to the concert of those diabolical howlings, the echoes of which seemed to shake the defile. Some panthers approached our bivouac to answer the barking of Pamir, but dared not attack us. I had left Srinagar at the head of eleven carriers, four of whom had to carry so many boxes of wine, four others bore my travelling effects, one my weapons, another various utensils, and finally a last, who went errands or on reconnaissance. His name was Shikari, which means he who accompanies the hunter and gathers the prey. I discharged him in the morning on account of his cowardice and his profound ignorance of the country, and only retained four carriers. It was but slowly that I advanced toward the village of Grande. How beautiful is nature in the Sindh Pass, and how much is it beloved by the hunters, Besides the great fallow deer, you meet there the hind, the stag, the mountain sheep, and an immense variety of birds, among which I want to mention above all the golden pheasant, and others of red or snow-white plumage, very large partridges, 
and immense eagles. The villages situated along the Sindh do not shine by their dimensions. They contain, for the greatest part, not more than ten to twenty huts of an extremely miserable appearance. Their inhabitants are clad in rags. Their cattle belongs to a very small race. I crossed the river at Sambal, and stopped near the village Grande, where I procured relay horses. In some villages they refused to hire horses to me. I then threatened them with my whip, which at once inspired respect and obedience. My money accomplished the same end. It inspired a servile obedience, not willingness, to obey my least orders. Stick and gold are the true sovereigns in the Orient. Without them, the very grand mogul would not have had any preponderance. Night began to descend, and I was in a hurry to cross the defile which separates the villages Gogangan and Sonamag. The road is in very bad condition, and the mountains are infested by beasts of prey, which in the night descend into the very villages to seek their prey. The country is delightful and very fertile, nevertheless but few colonists venture to settle here on account of the neighborhood of the panthers which come to the dooryards to seize domestic animals. At the very exit of the defile, near the village of Chokodar or Thajwath, the half-obscurity prevailing only permitted me to distinguish two dark masses crossing the road. They were two big bears, followed by a young one. I was alone with my servant, the caravan having loitered behind, so I did not like to attack them with only one rifle. But the long excursions which I had made on the mountain had strongly developed in me the sense of the hunter. To jump from my horse, shoot, and without even verifying the result, change quickly the cartridge, was the affair of a second. One bear was about to jump on me. A second shot made it run away and disappear. Holding in my hand my loaded gun, I approached with circumspection the one at which I had aimed, and found it laying on its flank, dead, with a little cub beside it. Another shot killed the little one, after which I went to work to take off the two superb jet-black skins. This incident made us lose two hours, and night had completely set in when I erected my tent near Chokodar, which I left at sunrise to gain Baltal by following the course of the Sindh River. At this place the ravishing landscape of the Golden Prairie terminates abruptly with a village of the same name, Sona, Gold, and Marg Prairie. The abrupt acclivity of Zogdila, which we next surmounted, attains an elevation of 11,500 feet, on the other side of which the whole country assumes a severe and inhospitable character. My hunting adventures closed before reaching Baltar. From there I met on the road only wild goats. In order to hunt I would have had to leave the Grand Route and to penetrate into the heart of the mountains full of mysteries. I had neither the inclination nor the time to do so, and therefore continued quietly my journey toward Ladakh. End of chapter 1, part 1 Recording by John Trevithick.